Welcome to the Cascadian Prophets Podcast, a production of the Cascadia Poetics Lab, empowering people to practice poetry and deepen connections to place, self, and the present moment. This section where you've laid out about a nomadic poetics and the five points, you know, it might be good if you summarized this or if you wanted to read from it, that'd be fantastic. Oh, and I love the Robin Blazer. I'm reading from it because I can't remember. <laughs> well, starting with there yeah. and then ending with the five points, which is on the two pages right. later. So, Yes, so a nomadic poetics is a war machine. That's, of course, Deleuzean, right? That goes to Deleuze and Guattari and uh, Mill Plateau and so on. Always on the move, always changing, morphing, moving through languages, cultures, terrains, times, without stopping. Refueling halts are called poesis. They last a night or a day, the time of a poem, and then move on. The Sufi poet spoke of Malkif. We'll come back to that. Actually, Malkif became a title of a booger mine. <laughs> uh, that's what the Span my Spanish translators called my selected poems in Spanish. So I'd use an Arabic word, and I love the fact of using foreign words to title my books, or made up words like uh, poesis, you know. A nomad poetic needs mindfulness. In and of the drift, derive, there is no atomeness here, but only an ever more displaced drifting. The fallacy could be to think of language as at-homeness, while, quote, all else, end of quote, drifts. Because for language to be accurate to the condition of nomadicity, it too has to be drifting, has to be on the way, as Tilam puts it. The derive concept is, of course, goes back to both the... Uh, the surrealists had some of that, and then the situationists made it kind of a central thing. But they had the derive, a drift, say, through Paris, through the night in Paris, going drinking, going into weird places, but, you know, just to let yourself drift off the trodden path that you would normally take, you know, that derive, you know, it's a nautical term, really, boat derive, you know, drifts, and so on. Then I add in a parenthesis, Think through Heidegger's Abgeschiedenheit, a partners, as a free domain or land where such nomadic drifting takes place. But that domain is always here and not somewhere else. It is the smooth space in DNG, Deleuze and Guattari, that deterritorializes all striated spaces. So it's away from Heidegger. You know, I'm using the term there, but Heidegger for Heidegger, that a partners become still like a nearly metaphysical domain. You know, he will talk at the end of metaphysics, but he replaces it with that kind of metaphysical, mm-hmm. you know. While I say, no, that is totally part of the present, of where we are. You know, you may not make that differentiation uh, any, any longer, you know, if you really want to be beyond metaphysics. Mm-hmm. Nomadics, the poet as comet, see Hölderlin in lovely blue, and thus to escape the metaphor of sun, center, etc. Important, you know, it was Hölderlin who used to say the poet is a comet, you know, rather than, you know, star. And of course, you know, and the metaphor of star is always a very fixed metaphor. 
you know, the fixed stars or the sun as the ultimate oneness. Mm -hmm. And that's a criticism I, you know, I mean, you have the new book that just came out. It's called Always the Many, Never the One, mm -hmm. right? It's um, another way to look at it is if you know that book I did of um, interviewing Adonis and in there Adonis and then I talk a lot against monotheism and everything bad that monotheistic thinking in you know in all the different cultures Christian, Jewish, Islamic etc has wrought you know that that is really <laughs> toxic toxic absolutely yeah 1025-94, if the mind is only the body's invisibility, Merleau-Ponty, that's a line I like, I mean, I haven't read it in a long time, but there it is, the mind is only the body's invisibility, mm -hmm. you know, I, it is the body, but it is an, an invisible part thereof. Then the poem is merely the unreadability, the non-transparency, the opaqueness of that mind. Hmm. Interesting. I can't remember exactly what I wanted to do there, but uh, yeah. It's potent. I don't know if merely is the right word, but yeah. An opacity grounded in the materiality of language as such, as much, if not more, than in the viscosity of the psyche. A turbulent opacity, not a monumental laminary marble of granite opaqueness. Yeah. A turbulent opacity. I mean, I remember I have a book called Turbulence. Uh, poems, um, that notion of the turbulence as the nearly non-mathematically calculable movements of water and air, you know, uh, that cannot be foreseen because the movements change at any given moment, you know, for whatever reasons or no reasons and so on. That is important. I think that's the way a poem also has to be able to move. Otherwise, you wind up with what you said earlier, you know, if you start this way and you already know that at the end you have um, a doublet of lines that sums up or contradicts the opening ones, you know, you're done. <laughs> you don't even need to start right. writing it, you know. Right. Duh. And in turbulence, you hope that uh, the plane can withstand it as you're flying. <laughs> when you're flying here from New York, yeah, right, you're hoping right. that the form of the plane, I think you say this in the essay, that the form of the plane is sufficient enough to survive that turbulence. Right. <laughs> oh, and then comes the Robin Blazer quote. The muse requires politics where the tongue meets in the thick of it, the sour sweat. Uh... Yeah, I mean, Robin was such an absolutely gorgeous philosopher poet. I mean, he was the one who, he's the first one really in the, among the poets to use Michel Foucault in interesting ways. You know, in that introductory essay he did on the Spicer for the collected Spicer, yeah, the piece there. Practice of Outside. Yeah, yeah, you know. Uh, so I like that because there's an, an, you know, practice of outside. He goes and talks about Foucault, but also to me, that outside also rings a bell with Noltonian poetics, you know, because it's that notion of outside is core to, 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 to that. So I like that conjunction. I mean, he's drawing parallels also between 
Olson and Whitehead in the essay The Violets. Uh-huh, right? uh-huh. Yeah. Both of them yeah. in The Fire, The Collected yeah. 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 Essays. I wish I had recorded the four or five nights when Robin was in Albany and he didn't want to stay in my house, also we had offered him a room. And I found out later it was simply because he liked to smoke and he didn't want to impose smoking on people. I was still smoking, we, Nicole was smoking, so it wouldn't have been a problem, right? But so I put him in a hotel about three blocks away from me. So he'd come and we'd have dinner and talk, and then I'd walk him back and we'd talk. And when we got to his place, we were not done talking, so we walked back to my house. And then we walked back to his house. And we do that two, three times every night, you know. I wish I had recorded those, those talks. They, you know, they, they would have really been... Um, rich. Rich. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, Robin to me is, you know, a very, very dear presence. Uh, yeah. And then on the, the, you have five notes on the next page. I believe. Oh, yes. Five points there. And now these five points. Great, I'm discovering these again. <laughs> well, well, you're, you're uh, uh, demonstrating the practice mm -hmm. of outside. I mean, sure, it's a long time and it's hard to remember all that, but to hear them now, to be articulated and to see if they match up with your thinking in the 25 years since this was written is, I think, very, very valuable. One, that language has always to do with the other. In fact, for the writer is the other. Yes, and that I absolutely believe, you know, today as much as I ever did. Um, language has to, you cannot simply, you know, live in language or become, you know, language is that, is, is, is the other. It is something that, language is a translation always already, you know, from various things. So it, it, it moves from physiological, mental, i.e. electric impulses, you know, into, it is translated into something else, i.e. language, you know. But this poetics that you're talking about, and I, and I hate, I, I don't want to interrupt the flow, but you're making an assumption that these are a projective poets or a new American poetry kind of poetics, as opposed to contemporary uh, poetry as, as as practiced by maybe a typical poet laureate of a state or the United States. <laughs> so we have to we have to state that that assumption, correct? I, I agree. No, no. Be because agree, if yeah. they're not writing from the practice of outside or in a projective way then it may not be a conversation with the other as much as you're saying. Absolutely. But that's why I demand it there, in a way. You know, I said, you want to write good poetry, you have to see it as that. That is how you have to, you know. That's why I told my students always to learn a foreign language, to understand that the language you write in is totally foreign also. And, you know, in translation, in translating from another language, you learn about the poetics and about the poetics of language, you know, in that sense, and that kind of, of the nature of language. Two, that there is no single other. There are only a multitude of them, plurality, even multitudes of different multitudes, heteropluralities. Look, I restate that in the title of the book came out this week, right? Always the many, never the one. You know, so that, that has been with me all the way through. The need for multiplicities, 
you know. What is more boring than the one? <laughs> Do I contradict myself? <laughs> Very well, then. I, I contradict say, myself. He said it, right? He said it way there back when. Yes. yes. Walt. Three. Language utters itself always again. Nomadic writing is always the practice of outside. There we are. I quote him again. Writing as nomadic practice, on the move from one other to another other. 3a, the critic theorist, the dog that barks as the caravan passes. A, the critic theorist is that creature. In the old Arab proverbs, you know, it's a dog that barks, as, but a caravan goes by. <laughs> <laughs> could of course then say well isn't the theory that you're writing there a critical essay yes so yes that's one of the multiple eyes of my own that looks at it and you know uh, I too am momentarily the dog <laughs> <laughs> that's right four poetry is always then on the way yes on the road as Kerouac has it here in these states whereas Sun Ra has it space is the place it is also unterwegs, underway, as Celan writes, where I hear the unter also as under the way, like below the way. And Pace, the Schwarzwälder's Hochzwege. The Schwarzwälder is Heidegger because he liked to live in the Schwarzwald, which was the Black Forest, you know, in Germany. And his Holzwege is the title of one of his books, which is um, usually badly translated because it's translated, you know, literally it means wooden path, you know, wooden roads. And I can't remember, there's, there's a roads too in one of the translated titles, which is totally misunderstanding because a Holzweg is actually a road that leads nowhere. The Holzweg was the road in the forest that goes as far as they cut the trees and then it stops. Then you had to go back. Right. I speak to that in that new book I mentioned uh, with Jean-Luc Nancy and Patty Smith and that um, photographer. Uh, you know, that just came out. Pace, the Schwarzwälder's Holzwege. Underway plus under the way. A betweenness as essential nomadic condition. Thus always a moving forward, a reaching, a tending. I hear the need for both tension and tenderness. And an absence of rest, always a becoming, a line of flight as against being, which is always a being towards death, stillness. 4a. Insert here a critique of Buddhism, of any spiritualism as quietism. Certainly Euro and adaptations of Buddhism are transcendental, while only a true immanent spirituality is viable. Uh, C.F. Janus. I have a book called Janus Poems. I can't even remember which poem I want to refer to there. <laughs> which is uh, uh, which has got a little bit in. Oh, there's something Oasis. there in Poesis, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Trust the calendars, the solar's paltry static assurances, and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's true. And then five, Celan. Quote: Reality is not; it has to be searched for and won. End of quote. Replace reality with poetry or millennium. Poetry is not. It has to be searched for and won. You know. uh, nothing 
is that whole criticism of an ontological thing, of being as such, you know, as, as an abstraction. There is no such thing. There is only becoming, there's only movement, there's only, you know, only in becoming, in doing, in moving, in that, in not standing still, do you actually do something, do you exist, you know. Existence is always in the moving. That is the fin mot, last words, towards the fin de siècle, so this was written in the 90s, so I was looking forward to 20th century, or a poetics thereof. Celan's phrase is the quest, as it includes the critique of the society of the spectacle um, and of the whole specular natures of our mistakes on the real. Yeah, yes, that's the board, the situation is, and, you know, that will, that will work. Voila, those were the five points. Well, so here's, here's the big question. Now, you, you come out as a guest of the Cascadia Poetics Lab. We have our logo with a map of here, and you're advocating a, a nomad poetics. So, uh... On, at first glance, one might see these as contradictory. We have Gary Snyder, who says, uh, who Andrew Schelling um, paraphrases as, bioregionalism is stay put, watch what happens. <laughs> okay, but you also say that uh, a nomad poetics requires a mindfulness. And at that point, the, you know, the Snyderists, uh, the people influenced by Gary and his bioregional take on poetry would very much agree with that. I always hear, and, and I also hear when you're talking about this always on the way, uh, never arriving at a, at a place, uh, to me conjures up notions of serial poetics. So I would ask you to address those. All of this. Well, I remember them now, but you can ask them again. You've got to be somewhere. You know, you can't discorporate yourself and, and write from there. So the place you are is essential, you know, in a very Olsonian way, as we learned via Olson, you know, or Gary. Uh, but uh, you also have to and can move. Now, I personally, in my own practice, you know, obviously change continents, change languages, so that that nomadic is built in. And if I come to think with and through nomadism, it is because of that personal experience of it and the, uh, how to say, uh, uh, the defamiliarizing that happens when you do any of those things, you know. But you can also remain in uh, Kitsi Kitsi, you know, and uh, work, as Gary does, for example, with some other languages, you know, translate from the Japanese, work with that. And that is a nomadism, you know. I mean, if I wanted to criticize it, I would maybe say it's not a real nomadism, it's only a transhumanism. You go always to the same place, you know, and come back, you know, it's a, 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 double, uh, a double movement rather than, you know, uh, moving anywhere else. But the nomadism to me and it's becoming again more and more important to think of us as essentially nomadic and to have the need to be that and to accept that. And if we accept it in us, we accept it in everybody else. 
And this is becoming more and more important when you think of climate crisis, the need of people forced out of their places, moving to other places. Two million you know, Ukrainians. Yeah. Even basic, you know, medieval wars like, you know, in Ukraine right now does that. Um, and you can see where that, that, that the, the French neo-fascist who ran for president um, lost. Le, Le Pen. No, not her. Uh, there was this other guy who was more intellectual but really stupid. I even kind of, don't want to repeat his name. Even but, if I could remember the, it right now. Or the Italian. Uh, or the Italian one. But the French guy actually laid it out very clear. He said, it's the nomads who are coming to take over from the sedentary peoples, calling himself and the French sedentary settled people, you know, and the nomads being anybody who comes from the outside and wants to take over. You know? Usually a dark-skinned person. Right. Usually a dark-skinned person or, you know, whatever, you know, you can always make up any kind of, uh, some, some sort of difference, right. you know, because right. it can also be eventually, you know, Bulgarians or, uh, you know, without Ukrainians, you right. know. Um, and we have to get back to a kind of understanding of the human as always being nomadic, always being able, you know, that displacement has place in it, you know, and, uh, yeah. uh, and we're going to have more and more of that. And unless it is going to be just a complete suicidal thing, you know, which is one way to solve the problem for the world, that is, wipe out most of humanity, and then they will no longer be able to fuck around with uh, the rest of uh, the living world so much and the earth may have time to get itself back into shape and create some other forms of life that may be more intelligent than homo sap sap. <laughs> we, st we start with a person on the jet ski. Right. <laughs> it's, it's fascinating to me um, and one notion of uh, an interpretation of a nomadic poetics even if it's someone like who's been inspired, say, by Gary Snyder, who finds a place they love, who's committed to it no matter what happens, who stays there, who connects with the rhythms of the sun and the seasons and the, the changes uh, that, that they create. Even that person in place would have a nomadic poetics by understanding, as you said, the multitudes of self. Yeah, the so. multitudes of self and what I now like calling the mycorrhizal world, i.e. the fact that everything is connected, mycorrhizal basically from fungus and roots of trees to different species that are completely connected interspecially and live with, for and of each other, you know, in that, that, that continual, uh, you know, that, that separation that humans have always made between themselves and other life forms in the arrogance of Homo sapsap, as I call him, you know, um, that has to be blown apart to, to see how connected we are with the rest of living and so-called non-living uh, matter. And that immediately gives us a nomadic sense of things. We are not something standing out apart there, you know, just waiting for the transcendental moment of death to wind up in some insane heaven, you know. Uh, 
uh, or, you know, we're just part of the ongoing dynamic process. The mushrooms are a particularly poignant example here in this place at this time because by this time each year, uh, for probably thousands of years, this would be mushroom time. But because there's been less than a half an inch of rain in this place since July 1st, the mushrooms are not popping up. So that connection. Um, what does it take? You were about to say something. One of the books that made me think about, one of the first books that made me think about that very much is um, a book about mushroom, about the Japanese mushroom hunting here in the forest by... Peter O'Leary. No, 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 by um, people brought here at the end of Vietnam War, Laotians, Vietnamese, Monk. you know, marginalized societies who kind of made a living by going here into the uh, Cascadian forests, Oregon uh, and so on, uh, and collecting those mushrooms that are extremely expensive in Tokyo, in Japan, right. and selling them, you know, and so making a living is kind of, what is the book called? My God. I'll send you the, the, the note. It's kind of the, the subtitle is something like, you know, ca you know, survival in the ruins of capitalism. Yeah. Uh, it's, a, it's a tremendous book about the forests uh, out here and about that, that economy. Um, so that one started me off on that. And then the other book called the, uh, In Search of the Muzzle Tree. Uh, what's her name? Suzanne Simons. Yes, yes, yeah. Suzanne uh, Simons. From Simons. Uh, UBC, right up the road. Right, right. You know, that's to me an, an, an important book. And so what's interesting in, in my thinking there, I think a lot of people right now or at the same time in very different areas are thinking very similar thoughts and ideas and becoming more and more to this. I mean, it's interesting that uh, reading various grand scientific theories now of how the world actually functions, you say, oh yeah, and they're quoting the man that Olson quoted way back when, you know, in 1950. Yeah, the poets were there. They knew it, you know. Uh, and that to me is, is you know, is, is very interesting that that, that is, what, what is what is happening. And they're also quoting the indigenous people who who were telling them right, telling them exactly. that two thousand yeah, five hundred yeah, years yeah. ago at least they were telling they were telling settlers that five hundred years ago yeah, and they were probably yeah. saying it two three thousand years ago. Is there a poem from the new book that you think might uh, cap off this session? In well, there's way? no poem in that book. Well, this uh, is all interviews. That's, that's all interviews. Uh, I have this book handy. You pointed out to a poem that I quoted, uh, that I may have quoted. Oh, you know the what? There is a section that kind of, I think. Well, we, you've you've already, well, we already talked about this this poem. But however, from that point on, or even from uh -huh. that moment of the canto diurno, uh, up until maybe that moment, I think sure. elaborates on that. Even though it's prose poetry, it's still poetry, right? <clears throat> yeah. So this is. And this is one from Canto Diurno. Canto Diurno. Numero uno. It's, it's a numero uno, yeah. Uh, it's the idea of um, finding a form 
but a form that is not uh, imposed inside the poem, but a form that is an outside contingency, if you want. And so here, the form there I found as a canto diurno, uh, the song of the day. And to take the 24 hours or every, however many hours I'm awake or, you know, uh, so on, and write, try to put a, I mean, you mentioned serial earlier, you know, do some seriality inside of that given day work and then have the series of canto diurnos, you know, making a wider seriality. Mm -hmm. and, and in this particular poem, there's this notion of the prose poem, which is the horizontal, and also the short, shorter lines going down the page, the vertical, creating yeah. this sort yeah. of cross. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Noon, Ray Gustav Sobin's work. Two ways of working, essentially. First, vertical, spine poem that turns, twists on grammatic. CF, compose, no ideas but in. Grammatic, a grammary I sense owes much to Tsilan, as does that corkscrew movement that anchors the poem downward into earth, air into earth from the top of the page. The heading, chapter, kaput, no longer gives permission of any kind of spread, the poem turns from its own title, Inceptor, i.e. first word or line given who knows how, runs in the shortest line possible, i.e. hairpin curves, mountain travail, where the descent beckons in a spiral, narrowing downward, vertical straights. Sharpest Kleinerman, always downward, screws itself into earth. This vertical Tropos is not to be confused with the organic, romantic image of poem as tree, of art, work as natural growth, tree with bold trunk, roots and branches, or with a man as tree confusion, the Renaissance romance, Leonardo's tree man inscribed upright in the cosmos, that cosmic anthropocentrism out of which, even if seemingly as reaction against, came Romanticism all the way down to us. For us still there in Duncan, we were already on the edge of a new configuration, twin to the explosion fix, already close to what this new figure might be, is in, say, Tselan, Sobin, some others, my own work, a necessary denial of tree image, the first approximation of the rhizome. And, secondly, a horizontal, horizontal, single-line sprezzatura. Even when it takes two or three, or rarely four or five lines, it always works on the one single line. These nearly always truncated, foreshortened, literally as if the I, the writers, the readers, couldn't only, could only catch that tail end or started out too fast, flew over, too eager at the beginning, the beginning therefore, the origin therefore always hidden, in hiding, the breath that is inhaled, invisible air that goes in to come out again of the body, colored, thus visible, inky glyphs shaped by lips and teeth and tongue, but something always already caught now catches in the throat. Catches, caches, a scroll, a banner of words, no banter here. No more air about to breezily agitate the sentences. It is as if all the air there was was needed 
in the breath making of the line. And now those foreshortened lines rest exhausted after a long journey, a trajectory described, come to rest in the playing field of gravity, of words, of language. The invisible ether origin may be the ideas as forerunners. Double parenthesis. But what does come first, thought or language? The aim of poetry, clearly the attempt to put that question out of play by creating the concordance of the two. The shadow and the thing, the thought and the word. Close parentheses. Gravity, I said. Then there is play again. Sound de cool, gravitas, gravide, grave, grave. Bring it all back down to earth. Form holds up, does it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I enjoyed that. I hadn't read that in a quarter century. Cascadian Prophet supporters include Diana Elser, a sponsorship dedicated to her parents whose practicality, humor, and love of family life reflected their experience in and love for the Eastern Missouri Breaks and Western Ruby Valley Montana landscapes that define their childhoods. And Steinbrook Native Gallery, located near Pike Place Market in downtown Seattle, featuring fine art of the Northwest Coast from emerging and established artists. A link to their site at CascadianProfits.org. Cascadian Profits is a project of the Cascadia Poetics Lab in Seattle, Washington. Check us out online at CascadiaPoeticsLab.org.